What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Founder's Journal, my personal diary made public for the world. I'm Alex Lieberman, co-founder and executive chairman of Morning Brew, and I am back with my new approach to Founder's Journal, curating and analyzing the best startup content on planet Earth. If you like this new style of episode and you want more of it, please let me know at alex at morningbrew.com. On this episode, I'll be sharing the best moments from Lenny Rachitsky's recent interview with Brian Chesky, the co-founder and CEO of Airbnb. Airbnb is a $95 billion publicly traded company that under Brian's leadership has grown into a community of 4 million hosts, welcoming over 1.5 billion guests across 220 countries. These moments range from how politics and bureaucracy are created to surviving near business death in 2020 to how Brian has grown as a CEO since day one of the business. Let's hop right into the first moment. Brian Chesky gives what I have found to be the best explanation of politics and bureaucracy in a company and how these things take hold of a business and stifle innovation and culture. If people are watching this from a large company, here might be some of the characteristics. The first thing you notice is that these different groups might be running on slightly different technical stacks. That's the first problem. And they may actually be uh, accumulating technical debt. The next problem you'll see is that there's a lot of dependencies. So Five teams are going some different directions, but they all need a payment platform. And so that once it happens is that the teams that everyone's dependent on get this backup, like a deli, and people are going around the block. And then they are basically like, at some point, they just kind of give up. So then the teams that are dependent on other people say, give me the resources and I'll build this group myself. So instead of five teams going to marketing to get a campaign, or to leverage some service, they start building their own marketing departments, their own groups. So now they're really becoming separate divisions. And this is where division comes from. Now, once you have a division, your division is as successful as you are a priority. So now you have to advocate for your division. So there's a lot of advocacy. If you have dependencies, you've got to persuade people by building relationships. And so the people that are like that build the best relationships are the ones that get the most resources. And that creates what we call politics. And so now politics have brewed in the company. And suddenly people get more subdivided, more subdivided, subdivided. And that creates another problem, which we call bureaucracy. And that bureaucracy means it's hard to know who's doing what. You can't, like people are going in different directions. And that creates a lack of accountability. When there's lack of accountability, then there's a sense that what I do doesn't matter. And that creates complacency. And then suddenly, a fast-growing company becomes a big, slow-moving bureaucracy. This is a general arc of what ends up happening. And then you end up having a situation where a company's done like 10 marketing efforts, but no customers heard anything. They have thousands of engineers. They shipped all these products, but a customer can't tell you a single thing you did. And, you know, marketing and engineering, like, don't talk to each other. It's not even they hate each other. They're like in different universes. I've always said that, the health of an organization, one simple heuristic is how close there's engineering and marketing. And marketing is, a lot of companies are like the waiters, engineers are like the chefs, and the chefs yell at the waiters and they go in the kitchen. In fact, the waiters are the ones talking to the customers all day, and they also know how to sell things. So you really want them being joined at the hip, and you want engineers to be thinking about maybe how to talk about the products that they're building. 
To sum it up, a world in which functions of a business become siloed to the point of acting like different business divisions, the need for advocacy and internal relationship building becomes a priority instead of doing the best work. And the creation of division leads to bureaucracy, which leads to lack of accountability, which leads to complacency, which means a very fast and exciting company becomes a slow and uninspiring one. Next up, Brian talks about how he thinks about the different types of marketing in a business, specifically brand, product, and performance marketing, and the purpose that each of them serve. As you know, Lenny, we're spending a lot of money in performance marketing. I don't think performance marketing is a bad thing. I think of performance marketing as a laser. Uh, Actually, my co-founder, who obviously you know well, Joe, used to have this metaphor of lasers, flashbulbs, and chandeliers. If you want to light up a room, performance marketing is a laser. It can light up a corner of a room. You don't want to use a bunch of lasers to light up an entire room. You should use a chandelier. And that's what brand marketing is. But if you do need to laser in and balance supply and demand, then performance marketing is really good. It literally lasers in. Performance marketing, though, doesn't create very good accumulating advantages because it's not an investment. Now, if you want to build it permanently, like Booking.com, if you have a really high ROI, now you can have a performance marketing arbitrage business. But assuming you don't want an arbitrage business, you actually need to be investing. And so we think of marketing as education, that we're educating people on the unique benefits. So a lot of companies don't do product marketing. They do brand marketing, which are ads about the app, or they do performance marketing but they're never really educating people about new things they're making and shipping. And because no one's marketing new things or shipping, there's no purpose to ship new things because you ship new things and people don't know about them or use them or they're not educated. And so you try these big new things, people don't adopt them immediately. So then you get more and more incremental. I love this idea of lasers, flashbulbs, and chandeliers, as well as the importance of product marketing to not just educate consumers, but also to almost create supreme style drops around big product announcements. Next, Brian talks about his near business death experience in 2020 with COVID and the way in which he ran the company post-pandemic. And then the pandemic occurred when we lost 80% of our business in eight weeks. And then suddenly we're like, oh my God, like, I remember having a basically staring into the abyss. And luckily, I've never had a near-death experience, but the way it's been described to me is it's like your life flashes before you are, your eyes and you have clarity. And that's what happened to our business. We had a near-death business experience and our business flashed before our eyes. And so suddenly, I basically got into action and I said, I'm going to run it this other way where I'm going to get back and evolve in the details. And by the way, Lenny, here's the funny thing. Before the crisis, a lot of people felt like I was too involved in different areas. Once the crisis happened, guess what happened? People are like, what do we do? Mm. We need you more involved. Mm. And so I got more involved. And when I got involved, I made the following changes. The first thing I did is I took like, I said, everything we're doing has to be written down and put into Google, Google, like a Google sheet. It turns out people couldn't even write down everything they were doing. I remember one person told me, you you think we're doing too many things for me to ever be able to document. I'm like, what? But anyways, we eventually got everyone to write everything down. And I said, okay, we can do about 20% of these things. And so if everyone says, oh, I'm, I might, it be simple. I'm only doing three things. Yes, but you're one of like a thousand people. So actually we're doing 3000 things. So instead of one team doing three things, three teams should do one thing. So we totally cut down the number of projects. We removed layers of management. I wanted to be as few layers as possible from the leaders of the team. 
we went to a functional model. We went back to a startup. So we said, we're not going to have divisional leaders. We're going to have design, engineering, product, and which turned to product marketing and marketing and communications and sales and operations, all the functions of a startup. I said, we're going to have fewer employees. We're going to have fewer, more senior people. There's a great saying that the best way to slow a project down is add more people to it. And so we felt like very few employees. We have fewer than 7,000 employees today. Uh, as a relative comparison, I think Uber has 30,000. And it's not to say they're big. It's just to say that's how small we are. And we've really benefited from having not a lot of employees. So we had, we made sure that every executive was an expert in their functional domain. So you know how there's a lot of engineering managers that aren't that technical or maybe not a lot, but they exist or there's designers, but there's design leaders who lead the people. A design leader's job should be managing the design first, the people second. That's what Johnny did, or like they're, they're interchangeable. I, I could never imagine Johnny out at Apple just being a manager of people. He was looking and designing the work with the team. How do you manage the people without managing their work? How do you give them development if you're not in the details with them on the work? So the same thing is true. So people had to be experts. Everyone had to be an expert. I stopped pushing decision-making down. I pulled it in. I created one shared consciousness. And I said the top 30, 40 people in the company are going to have one continuous conversation. Metrics are going to be subordinate to the calendar. So we're going to have a roadmap. It's going to be a two-year roadmap. We'll update the roadmap literally every month. People may wonder, well, like, what if the world changes? Yeah, it changes every day. So the roadmap's something where the next month doesn't change, but two years out, it changes. It's a rolling roadmap. And by the way, if Ukraine like, gets invaded and you want to like provide housing for refugees, you can still pivot people and adapt very quickly. We house 120,000 refugees. So you still keep a reserve of resources to be able to pivot and do things because there's always unexpected events. I created this new function called product marketing. We basically described what that is. I made the group much smaller. I took a lot of product managers. I reassigned them as program managers. I had many of them trained an actual program manager because their roles got much bigger. Um, program management Airbnb is a high status job. At a lot of companies, it's like a coordination job. At Airbnb, we said, because we're going to do launches, it's high status. We said, we're going to do two launches a year and you can't ship something unless it's on the roadmap. So every single thing in the company, with the exception of some infrastructure projects, have to be on the roadmap. And then I'm going to review all the work. And so we create the CEO review schedule where I said, I'm getting back in the ball from the project and I'm going to design, I'm going to review all the product and all the marketing. So every project I would do review either every week, every two weeks, every four weeks, every eight weeks, or every 12 weeks, there'd be a cadence. And then I had a head program manager that would score all the projects, either they're green, yellow, or red, meaning they're on track or not on track to ship. Whether we thought there were work, we don't know until after we ship it, but I use the reviews of the work every single week. And the reason there's not a lot of bureaucracy and the reason you don't need any influence at Airbnb is I'd review the work. And if something wasn't happening, then I would like stop the meeting and say, why isn't this happening? And like, we would all get together. And so you couldn't have a situation where like a team wouldn't collaborate. And so it would be like, I could then feel the work of an, of an individual engineer. Cause imagine it's like we're a car company and I, I see the car prototype every week. And I notice there's a, there's a, there's a something about the tires off. Now I, I can identify the individual person who was blocked. So every week I would see, I would try to see the equivalent of at least a semi assembly of the entire new product we were working on, which allowed me to identify with teams 
the different bottlenecks happening in the company. And the reviews were the thing that allowed us to dictate the pace. And so because we had annual we, re, re, all these reviews, I didn't need to mandate people going back to an office. I didn't really care where they worked because I could track how well they were working because of the review cycle. So just to sum up, the changes Brian made all were reflective of making Airbnb more like a startup in size and speed and less like a publicly traded corporation. Fewer, more senior people. He is very in the weeds functionally organized versus divisionally organized, and a single two-year roadmap that is reviewed and revised regularly. But more important than the changes he outlines is his overall view on what it looks like for founders and CEOs to lead their business effectively. If you're a founder, what I would tell you is the problem with finding a negotiation between how you want to run the company, the people you want, is that's a good way to make everyone miserable. Because what everyone really wants is clarity. What everyone really wants is to be able to row in the same direction really quickly. And also, if you try to appease employees, they may not even be there for the whole time. So we have entire projects at the company where somebody advocated to do it. It was a big commitment, and then they left. And now we're still doing the project they advocated for. So it really has to be something that everyone wants to sign up for, not just the person who's there because they might not always be there. And so, you know, I basically got involved in every single detail. And I basically told leaders that leaders are in the details. And there's this negative term called micromanagement. And I think, I think there's a difference between micromanagement, which is like telling people exactly what to do and being in the details. Being the details is what every responsible company's board does to the CEO. It doesn't mean the board is telling them what to do, but if you don't know the details, how do you know people are doing a good job? People think that great leaders job is to like, hire people and, and just empower them to do a good job. Well, how do you know they're doing a good job if you're not in the details? And so I made sure I was in the details and we really drove the product. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Next, Brian talks about his core principles as a CEO. And you will see that he shares principles that are specific to product and tech companies, but most of them are abstractable to any business. Here are the things I believe. I'll give you a checklist. Number one, I think that the CEO, unless they're not a product person, should think of themselves as the chief product officer and they should be involved in the product. Number two, if you're not functional, I would at least think about everyone being really close together. So here's another way of saying it, Lenny. Every product manager should be in interconnected and know what everyone else is doing. They shouldn't be independently siloed unless they really are running like separate companies or separate orgs and they have no dependencies. I think that every leader should be an expert in what they're leading. There should be no people managers in the entire company. And when I say people managers, meaning your only responsibility is people, not the work or not the domain, because you can't manage people devoid of their work. You know, imagine like a fire chief, they don't know anything about like putting out fires. Like that's crazy. Like you have to know the subject matter. People should aim to have as few people as possible on their team. I'm not saying eliminate people. I mean, grow slowly and do not be reckless. Five teams should do one thing, rather than one team do five things. 
So that's just a metaphor. But people should work together. I think that people should consider doing launches. You can, by the way, ship every hour of every day, but then package it and tell a story if you want to hold the product back. I think that teams should use data, but they should also use research and intuition. There's a designer called Charles Eames that said you can't delegate understanding. If you're going to do A-B experiments or measure data, you have to understand what it means. I think that you have to have an intuition. Intuition comes not from arbitrariness. It comes from understanding. I would make sure that you have engineering and design, ideally report to the founder, product-led person. I would not have design under product unless you have an extremely good reason the product person kind of is a designer. I would try to think about product management, expanding the responsibility and including distribution, understanding the customer and teaching people how to tell a story. I would try to make sure that the product managers are a combination of art and science. I do not think you want purely technical product managers doing things if they're going to work with non-technical functions, right? If they're only work technical functions, that's fine. But if they don't work in non-technical functions, I think that's a problem. I should make sure that marketing and engineering are interconnected. I would make sure that you have as few layers between a CEO and other people. If you're a CEO, every direct to your direct should be a implicit dotted line to you. So I treat every direct to my direct as if they're a direct report, a dotted line. I don't try to conflict with the direction of my team, but I always want to know what another layer below me is doing. I think you should think of each release as a chapter of a story or like an episode of TV series. And you should think of your company in a five or 10 year story. You may not know where you are in 10 years, but you're telling this ongoing story. And most of all, I would say that everyone should row in the same direction. If there's only one thing I said in this interview today, which I'm not sure what it would be, but I, I think a good candidate is try to get everyone to row together in the same direction. Otherwise, why the hell are you all in the same company? I think my favorite principle of everything that Brian said here is creating a distinction between micromanagement and being in the details. Micromanaging is not effective because it's inefficient and it shows you do not trust your team. But not being in the details is just as ineffective because you cannot be a helpful leader if you don't know exactly what is going on in your business. Next, Lenny asks Brian about his ability to make Airbnb employees think bigger and set more ambitious goals. Here's what he says. As you know, there was a there was a saying inside of Airbnb, it was add a zero. Add a mm-hmm. zero at the end, which <laughs> is to make to imagine something order manage bigger. Mm-hmm. The exercise isn't necessarily to say if people say they want to hit a goal, I say, okay, I added a zero, and you have to hit that goal. It's more the exercise of what would it take to be 10x bigger or do something 10 times better. Because what you find is when you push people, they will sometimes think about the problem differently. And one of the best ways to get unstuck from a problem is to imagine a 10x scale or 10x better or 10x faster, where you can't do the current process to do it. You have to think differently about the problem. And to think differently about the problem means you have to deeply understand the problem. And to deeply understand the problem, you have to break it into its components. And we might call this like first principle thinking. What are the foundational elements that comprise this problem? And how can we reconstruct them? So the first thing is, I think by adding a zero, at least conceptually for teams, it helps them understand a problem. The second is, I think one of the most important things for a founder or leader to do is set the pace of the team. I think the pace of the team is one of the most important things you can do. And that pace is sometimes governed not by how hard people work, but how decisive they are. 
if you want to improve the speed of a company, then make faster decisions. And that fast decisions come from a bias of action. If we're in a meeting, we don't just say like, okay, like let's circle back on this next week. No, we'll have it done by next week. Let's stay in this meeting till it's done. What are you doing? Have a bias for action. Who's responsible? Okay, what are you doing? Okay, let's check in an hour. I'll call you in the morning. Okay, how are we do this? And so you end up getting three months of work done over that period of time. But the last thing I'll say about adding a zero, Lenny, is I remember there was a story about a great uh, basketball coach named John Wooden. He was one of the uh, winningest basketball coaches, I think, in college basketball history, perhaps the greatest. And someone asked him once, I'm going to paraphrase what he said, like, what is your secret to success? And he said that, you know, I just asked my players to do their very best. And I remember thinking to myself, that doesn't sound like the secret to success, asking people to do their best. But there was an implicit thing that he didn't say, which is that he saw potential people that they never saw in themselves. And so the role of a leader is to see potential in people that they may not even see themselves. And when I tell somebody it's not good enough, either I'm saying you're not good enough, or I believe that you have more potential than you're showing me. So in other words, you can push a team and they could feel demoralized because they can feel like what they're doing is not good enough if they have a fixed mindset. Or you create a growth mindset organization where the more I'm involved, the more I say you can do better, it's because the more I believe in you and I know that you have more in you. And the way to know if a team could do better is if their life depended on it, could they do it? And Andy Grove used to say that there's competency and motivation. And motivation is if their life, and they're not literally dependent on it, but like if it was a crisis or if it was like a defining moment in their lives. I think the job of a leader is not to make it life and death, that's too far, but to be able to motivate a team to see potential in them that they don't see in themselves and to really push them, to set a tempo, to break something down to first principle thinking. And if you do that, then I think that's going to be the opposite of these slow-moving, kind of soul-crushing bureaucracies. Next up, Lenny asks Brian how he's continued to grow and evolve as a CEO as Airbnb has grown and evolved as a company. I was with Sam Altman probably a few weeks ago at dinner, and I told him, yeah, I still feel like I have a lot to prove. I haven't made it yet. And he was really surprised. He's like, what are you talking about? And I didn't even realize that he thought that was an absurd notion, but I said, no, I haven't made it yet. It's not to say I'm not grateful or I feel like I need to get somewhere so that therefore I'll feel like worthy. But I have this still, this kind of beginner's mindset that the bigger I get, the more a beginner I tend to feel. It's like a weird feeling. I think like when you, when I first took off, I think I thought I would like maybe like I knew everything or I knew more than I certainly did. But then you get past some peak. When you go into this trough where you realize, oh my God, the moment you get to some frontier of knowledge, you start to become a beginner again and everything is new. And so I think the first thing I try to do is to be a beginner. You know, Pablo Picasso had a saying, he said, it took me four years to learn to paint like Raphael, but a lifetime to learn to paint like a child. And so I've tried to always see the, uh, the world through the eyes of a child. And I think one of the key characteristics of a child is curiosity, to see everything with fresh eyes, to not have too many judgments. Like when I was trying to figure out how to run a company, I studied the history of division organizations and I studied Steve Jobs, but also studied like 
what Bill Gates did. And I studied like Alfred Sloan at General Motors that MIT, uh, MIT Sloan is named after. And actually the founding of divisional companies, which I believe was DuPont, they were making powder for gunpowder. The war ends. What do we do with powder? Turns out powder can be used for paint, but the way you sell gunpowder and paint are different sales channels. So they created what we now know as the divisional structure. So I try to like understand the sources of things. I try to learn. I try to be shameless about reaching out to help. I think that a lot of people are afraid to reach out to help because they think other people are busy. The biggest honor most people get in their lives or one of the biggest honor is when other people ask them for help because we all just want to feel useful. So don't feel ashamed to reach out to something for help. It actually like it gives a lot of them great honor. And I think you don't need to reach out to people 10 years ahead of you. They can just be people a year ahead of you. In fact, an entrepreneur getting started, I might be less useful then than somebody two years ahead of them that knows like the latest distribution channels that I like kind of have forgotten. So I think that that is the key. It's learning, it's growing, it's curiosity. It's constantly having that hunger and that fire to always want to be better to remember, to feel like I haven't made it yet. Because the reason I say I haven't made it yet is because if I've made it, then I'm done. Mm -hmm. And I want to feel like an artist. You know, Bob Dylan used to say an artist has to be in a constant place of becoming. And so long as they don't become something, then they're going to be okay. And so you, ha you have to always be evolving, learning, growing. And the canvas keeps getting bigger. The mountaintop keeps getting higher. And I feel like I'm just getting started. And I hope that, you know, the panel, I don't know how long you intend to do the podcast, but I intend to do this for a long time. And if you do or, or whatever, we'll definitely want to have talks. And I hope years from now, Lenny, I hope 70% of what I said, I still believe. But if 100% of what I say, I still believe that I probably haven't learned very much. And so if, if 90% I say, I, I don't believe anymore, then I'm like, you know, kind of delusional and wrong. But if, but, it, but I sincerely hope that I retract it or change or modify a few things I said today in a few years, because that will mean that I've gained more wisdom. And so how do I do that by being curious? So those are some of my favorite moments from the wide-ranging discussion between Lenny Rachitsky and Brian Chesky, as well as my analysis of these moments. If you want to listen to the full conversation, which I highly recommend, we have linked to it in the show notes. And also let me know if you like this style of episode where I react and analyze other content that has been created for founders. Just shoot me an email to alex at morningbrew.com. And as always, thank you so much for listening and I'll catch you next episode. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard.